Hey there, it's Kristen Crockett, and you are listening to The Plastic Couch, a podcast to help you find clarity and confidence in your life. Most of us remember someone from back in the day with a couch they kept covered with plastic. It was meant to protect and preserve the couch for tomorrow, but the plastic was hot and uncomfortable, and it kept everyone from enjoying it. So what does the plastic represent for you in your life? Is it perfection, fear, or something else? And what are you preventing yourself from enjoying, or better yet, from being? I'm your host, Kristen Crockett, and I'm here to help you with the tools to get clarity on your path to you and to help you see what's on the other side of the plastic. So before we start today's episode, I have some really incredible news for you. My new book is out called The Diversity in Humanity, and I cannot wait for you to read it. This is a multi-author book with so many of us from across the country that are contributing our thoughts on how to create a more harmonious workplace. So head to Amazon, and I cannot wait for you to read it. So thank you in advance for taking your time to read it and for leaving your reviews. And with that, let's jump into this episode of the Plastic Couch Podcast. If you've missed part one of Erin's story, I definitely want to tell you, you've got to go back and listen to part one before you head into part two with us. It is such an amazing story, but just to get all the details together, make sure you go back and listen to part one first. And with that, we are moving right along with part two. And in this episode, we are learning all about how Aaron became the head of household at just nine years old. So let's jump in right there. I'm sitting in classroom and I'm never good. And uh, principal comes in and is like, hey, we need Aaron. And so I go with her and she's like, hey, something happened at home. You need to go. And I, I, you know, I have no idea what's going on, but I remember running. It was only a block, right? But when you're nine, it feels like eternity. And so I'm running up the steps and I go in and my mother's on the floor with the phone and I help her up, get her in the chair. And that became this sort of, oh, things are going to be very different now, (laughs) you know? And after that, I started having to help cook for my brothers, making hot dogs in the craft box, macaroni and cheese, doing packets of oatmeal, whatever I could make at nine, 10 years old on the stove by myself. That's what we were having for dinner, helping with homework and even doling out whoopings every now and then. <laughs> and, and I remember my mom explicitly being like, no, beat his ass. I was like, oh God, okay. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's laughing has helped me out a little bit. But yeah, and that's the thing is I know some people might be hearing us giggle or laugh throughout this, but I think for yeah. you and me both, how we deal with trauma is just like making light of it. It's a reaction to it, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's not still it's it, deep or sad, but it, it's just a reaction to it. it's a coping mechanism. So it is. And I'll say this conversation honestly is even just thirty-nine years later and I'm learning a little bit more and more about myself right now as we talk, even about the shoe thing. I didn't really process it. But the other day I was tying my shoe and I was shaking and I was like, why am I shaking tying my shoe? And now I realized that I thought it was just because getting that loop thing together was hard. Yeah. But as I think about this more and as we talk more, I'm realizing, wow, like there is a lot that I haven't unpacked yet and have not really talked with a professional about yet. And 
the things that I had to do with my brothers, being that adult, sometimes I feel like when I talk about it, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't feel like, I don't want to feel like I'm bragging or that I'm taking credit where I shouldn't be taking credit, but I did a lot, a lot. And I did a lot for two years, maybe even longer than that, to be honest, because even when we did move in with our grandmother, there was so much just strife there with between my mother and my grandmother that we were off on our own, even within that house. So I still did a lot. And when we moved to SOS Children's Village, I thought like in my head, I was still trying to do a lot. At some point I realized I didn't have to, and I was able to, you know, curb, but it just, it, I don't know if it ever really goes away, or at least for me, it hasn't always. It still feels like I've got to protect and take care of and do something. But yeah, yeah for two years, I cooked, cleaned, lifted my mother off the floor, put her in chairs, whatever she told me to do, I grocery shopped. Weed man, listen, Kristen. So, <laughs> yo, my mom used to smoke and she smoked a lot and it wasn't even really a secret. But I learned how to spell marijuana from her. I was writing a note on a little yellow pad and I had to write the note to the weed man. And it was like, give my son, this my son, whatever she called. I can't remember his name. And, you know, this my son. I want however many dime bags she wanted. I can't remember. But I remember it was a dime bag and it was marijuana. Like she wrote, she wanted marijuana. Cause I got, he must've obviously sold other stuff too. She's so, very like, specific about very that. Specific about this. Don't give him anything else. Just give him the weed. And I'm surprised she didn't call it weed actually, but I remember it was marijuana. And so maybe she was trying to teach me and I run down the street and our, it was a yellow house with brown trimmings around the windows and wherever else. And I knock on the door and yeah, he wasn't really surprised. He wasn't really, what's going on, little man? What you doing? Why? There was no questioning. He read the note, took the money, handed me the bag. It was a manila, the small little manila envelope, like a little coin. They used to back in the day to put coins in there and stuff. And he handed that to me and I bring that back to my mother and I used to roll them for her. She used to have top paper, she used to take the little top paper off lick it. She could lick at that point. She could still do some stuff with her hands. I would still like get the little sticks out of there for her sometimes because our hands were starting to slightly like she was getting to that point where she couldn't use her hands as much. This was toward the end before we moved in with our grandmother where I started doing more of that. This is this is nine or 10 years old. Oh, at this point, though, I may be like, yes, closer to 10, 11 at this point, because she when I'm starting to really do the weed for her. I'm always when she couldn't walk, I did start going to pick it up and then she would she could roll it herself. But then when she got to the point where she couldn't roll it, I would start rolling it and I would start clearing the little sticks out of there and breaking it down more. And she'd get mad if I did too much in one, too little in another. So Um, it's really, truly everything you experienced was it's all of the responsibilities of an adult in a child's body. It really was. It really was. So I had this experience when I was in fourth grade. I'll never forget this. I was at the chalkboard and this was, we were doing multiplication tables. I had the fours or something like that. And so it was like four times one and I'm writing them down and the kid next to me had the five, somebody had the twos, whatever. So The teacher, she's going each row. Okay, good. Very good. Very good. Okay, good. And then she gets to me 
she puts both hands on my shoulders and she leans in and she's, is everything okay at home? And I was like, and I, my face got high, right? Who knows my secret? Cause no, like I, in my head, none of the kids knew. Teachers didn't know. I, I know one teacher knew because she became our, actually became our guardian at one point, which is wild. So one teacher I knew for sure knew, and obviously the principal knew. And I'm like getting hot and I'm like, I remember just being like 38 hot at the board. What is this? And so she's just want to make sure you come in here and you smell like pee every day. And she's mm-hmm. like, I just you reek of urine. Is What do you need? What can we get you? What's going on? And after that, I was like, whoa, it never occurred to me that we weren't taking showers. We weren't brushing our teeth. There was no one to really tell us to do other things. Our mother didn't really tell us to do those things. I think there was so much other stuff to worry about that us getting, as long as we got up and put on clothes and got out the house to school, it was a win. Mm. It was a win. The little things along the way, like brushing your teeth, I'm still learning. I'm still getting into the habit of doing, making it a daily task. Like I to admit, I know that's a shame that 39, but I still have to remind myself, oh shit, go brush your teeth. Like it's not like some people wake up and it's first thing they do. It's a habit. They feel gross if they don't do it. Not me. I learned how to properly take a bath and shower and wash my face when I was 21 because a girl made fun of me. And she then she pulled me to the side and told me how to wash my face. Like she was like, why is your face all caked up like that? And I was like, what do you mean? And so <laughs> just as a side, I'll tell you a story. So she takes me to the bathroom. She's like, show me what you do. And I splashed some water on my face because that's what the girls did in the Noxzema commercial. She had her hair pulled right, back into a right. bun. And she would put the water on her face. That's what I thought you had to do. And she's laughing at me. She's like, no, baby. And so she gets soap. She got Dove Bar. She said, use Dove or Olay. And then when you learn more, you can start venturing into other products. But right now, don't be using that other stuff. It'll dry you out. Like I learned at 20 something years old, how to like really, truly start taking care of my hygiene. Because at childhood, that's part of what childhood is, right? It's you, it's the adult kind of gearing you up for life. Like you're building these routines, brush your teeth, wash your hair. And it's it sounds so robotic and it sounds, and as a kid, you're like, ah, I imagine. But when you're older, it's an integral part of being an adult, like taking care of yourself. It almost becomes automatic, but we didn't have that. So I had to find a way like on my own to make these things automatic, like showering all the time. And that's something I've really gotten into. I love my showers and and washing my body, but I'm still working on my oral hygiene. Yeah, because it's a it definitely is a routine. And Mm -hmm. every single parent, we all will talk about having to make sure like kids will do they'll do the best to get out of it, too. Oh, yeah. Let's go run the water, play on the phone. Okay, I've taken a shower. Okay. No, you really didn't. So yep. it's, it's something that you constantly have to be on for kids and especially boys. Especially boys. And that's yeah. what I was going to say. And you like had a boys, you have to hold boys. their hands. If you don't do that with boys when they're growing up, they won't do it when they're an adult. They won't. Or it'll t- it's going to take for them to be shamed or have an experience like I had with. Thankfully, even though she was laughing at me, she was also loving me at the same time. Yeah. Yep. And she helped me through that. And help me get to the point that I am now with my hygiene. But if you don't have that and don't encounter that, then you won't have it later. But in four or five boys in the house, one with severe cerebral palsy. So I really always I tend to say four because I try not to include them in that. But four boys 
And there's no one around to do what a boy needs. It doesn't have to be. Now I know it doesn't didn't necessarily need to be another man, but not having that figure, other figure in the house who was capable of walking us through this. I don't know what my brothers and I don't talk about what they their response to the trauma. I know what I think I see and that's their story to tell. But I don't know what their trauma responses have been and what that's been like for them and how they've learned to get to where they are. So being a man of the house, and there's a lot to say there too. There's a lot to say about what this caused with my relationships with the rest of my family, because you have this 10-year-old boy leading a home and then going into spaces because sometimes we'd have to go to our grandmother's house for the weekend. And now all of a sudden I'm a child again. Why are you talking like this? Why are you doing that? Who do you think you are? Well, I literally just did it last night and it wasn't a problem. I, I spoke the way I spoke without a problem. And when I was 10 years old, I'm speaking directly to adults like adults because I remember the social worker came by the house and we had to clean up the house and get ready. And this was an instance where I left school in the middle of the day, got the house set up, prepped up, put my mother, made sure she was in a chair by the door. So that when the social worker arrived, she could just reach and open the door and have them get up and walk to the door. So she was there. It was all staged. At the time, I thought we were getting away with it. You couldn't have told me that my 10-year-old self didn't do the damn thing. Came into the house, set up the house. We cleaned up, got everything all straightened out. We fooled the social worker. And in retrospect, now I see, you know, by the end of the school year, we were out of there. She could see what was going on and probably was kind enough to give us the chance to finish the school year. But go back yeah. to second grade, because I think yeah. we didn't talk about that yet. So tell us a little bit about you raising your hand to go home. So there had come this point where I knew I needed to go and check in. And I don't know how the school worked it out. But I just know that in the middle of the day, and it may have been right around recess, I would go to the house, to the apartment. And mind you, again, we have a brother with cerebral palsy. So I needed to make sure he was okay because he used to bump his head a lot. And was he fed? Did he get his lunch? Was our mother on the floor again? And so that became a coordinated effort that I guess our principal worked out. And it was just a thing where each grade, each new school year, each new teacher, I just, hey, can I go? do this. Raise my hand. It's about that time. That's what that turned into. It, it was almost automatic, if you will. It was just a known thing. But I don't know. Again, that's what I'm trying to remember. My teacher in fourth grade to ask me about my urine situation, you know, why I smelled like pee. She must not have known exactly what was going on. But the principal knew. I know that. And I know my third grade teacher knew. And I think my second grade teacher caught on. So this was all from like second to fourth grade. Just the beginning of fifth. Raising your hand, leaving. Hey, it's that time. Yep, got to go. Yeah. And go home and just check. It was a wellness check. That's what it was. It was a wellness check. Make sure everything was okay. And then I'll go back and finish the school day. So let's um, talk about your tremendous relationship with responsibility. So based on everything that you've been through, tell us more about this heaviness, this relationship to responsibility as an adult. If I say, what's your relationship to responsibility? How would you answer yeah. that? Honestly, as an adult, like I try yeah. not to do anything now. I want little responsibility as possible. I really do. I don't want to be in charge of anything. I don't want to lead any efforts. And here's what ends up happening. And so I hear your question now. So I see now, yes, I try my hardest to, gosh, now you're making me mad here. <laughs> 
Because you know what this ties into? And you just made me mad. This ties into something someone said to me one time. She said, Aaron, you're afraid of success. And I was like, afraid of success? How can you be afraid of success? Everybody wants success, blah, blah, blah. But what I didn't understand and what I now am hearing with your question is that she was asking me to take on more work, like another responsibility. She was gearing me up to be in that next level of my career. And the idea, I think, of having to do more work, having to take on more, I didn't want it. And so I would act out. All of a sudden, I'm falling apart on projects. We had been doing really well. And this always, I would do so well at work. And then I'm approached about taking on the next level or stepping up to the next level. And then all of a sudden, I'm having trouble at work, like clockwork, every time. Aaron, I think you'd make a great manager. Aaron, I think you'd make a great director. Before we get there, I just want to see you do this. And then I'd fall apart, completely fall apart. And I think that might be the connection there is that I did so much at the time when I shouldn't have been doing all of that. Like these formative years in my life, I was doing so much. And then I haven't even layered in like just being gay, like trying to figure that out. Black gay boy out here in this world trying to figure this out. I guess maybe I just realized I was tired. And then as an adult, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do anything. I just want to show up and do the bare minimum and go home. Yeah. Yeah. Just do my job, if you will, and go home. Yeah. So, Aaron, I'll I'll tell you, I had a, a friend and I was in Florida and we were headed to Universal Studios and she was driving there and she just started driving. She was like, you got it in your GPS? I was like, yeah. And in my head, I'm like, I'll just follow her. And she's driving. And then I'm like calling her son being like, hey, can you tell your mom to stop going through almost yellow lights and let me know? <laughs> like, I'm following her. And when we got to Universal Studios, she was so worked up and so angry. We had uh-huh. gotten into an argument. And when we talked about it, uh-huh. it was all related to the fact that she didn't want to be the leader. Uh-huh. She didn't want any more responsibility because she already was dealing with her mom having Alzheimer's for, mm. I think, almost seven years at that point, taking mm. care of her two kids, going to work. It was like, it was just this one more thing that she didn't want to have. We had to make that connection probably weeks later, mm. but it's real. It's yeah. real. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to deal with anything else. You don't want to have to think about anyone else. You reach that point where you're just like, I'm done. I'm tired. And you're telling that story made me think about how I sometimes approach dating, which is so one time, this is not nice, but when I travel with a guy, I really will take a step back and I'll see how they lead. Can they get to help us get out of a situation? Can they take care of themselves? Can they be by themselves in this city for a day? So I went to Mexico with a guy and it was like, I said, hey, can you get us here? I knew how to get there, but... I wanted to see if I had to do everything. Did I have to plan this? Because that's what was happening. I was like, do I have to plan this too? I got us to Cancun. Can you at least do the rest of this? Please, I'm begging. And I realized now I look for that. Like someone who's willing to meet me or honestly take off some of this, honestly. 
Yeah. yeah because you're looking for a partner instead yeah. of, you know, it's the same dynamics, I think. And that's the thing is that when we grow up being the responsible person in a relationship, we don't want that shit anymore. Like yeah. We want yeah. a partnership. We don't want to yeah. have to take care of you like a parent or child kind of dynamic. And I see even now with my nieces and nephews, I see the same scenarios playing out with them that we went through in our childhood, kind of going through it. And there is a part of me that wants to swoop in and take them. There is. And then there's a part of me that's just like, Aaron, you just can't do it. I don't have the capacity. I want to, but I don't really genuinely believe that I have the capacity to like long term, give them what they need. Yeah. And the capacity is something that I'm always talking to people about. I love that you use that word because we can want all we want, but Mm -hmm. unless we have the emotional capacity, Mm -hmm. like the time, the skills, like all of those things relate to capacity. And at a certain point, we have to really just say, I'm at capacity. I can't. Yeah. And speaking of this, so I want to bring this back to how Jerry came in my life because he became this first person that lifted the burden for me or showed me that there's a way to live another world out there. So Jerry was my scout leader when we moved out to SOS Children's Village, which in and of itself is a story. (laughs) I was going to say, tell us just a tad bit just about what SOS Children's Village is. Yeah. So SOS Children's Village started out of World War II and it's an orphanage, if you will. And so they have these homes on a plot of land. In, In our case, there were 10 homes and there is a house parent and that parent will receive... Sometimes a full family unit, like me and my brothers, and we lived in this house. Sometimes it'll be a blended family. It might be two brothers and two sisters that came from foster care, and now they're living with this house parent with four kids. She has the four kids. Sometimes it's one, 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 and now you're all a family. And the house parent receives a salary, and that is their job. They are paid to take care of us. And we had a great one, honestly. We went through two. The first one was, uh, but the second one, she was just fantastic. We didn't know it at the time, but as adults, my brother and I talked about that and she really loved us and really took care of us. She's also, side note, reason I kind of eschew Christianity, but she <laughs> was just a great, like, honestly, she, she meant really well. I ended up in Boy Scouts and I don't think my brothers did Boy Scouts. I think I was the only one. And I remember there was a conversation about me what are we going to do with Aaron? That was the conversation these adults were having. I was in the room off to the side, but they were like, he needs to be a boy, like a teenager. Like he needs to just be not out here trying to run the house. Cause that's what I was still trying to do when we moved out there. I really was. Mm-hmm. I was trying to tell a house parent how to do things. He don't like like that. He ain't going to do that. He ain't going to do that. No, don't do that. Do this. And it's like, you're a child. Shut up. You know, that's what they're looking at me and they don't know my full, though they get a, they get a file on us, but how does a file talk about what I had to do for, from second to fourth grade? How do you put that in writing into on a one sheet of paper? They get me into Boy Scouts and that's where I meet Jerry. He's this older white man. He has an insurance agency and it was the first time I met someone with a job, which I know is crazy. I think it was just that he saw, so there are some racial elements to this too, because when I would get around adults. I used to try to move like I was one. I used to do this thing where I would mimic, I would look down on the teenagers who were being teenagers and I'd turn my nose up to them like, you guys, why can't you be quiet? I was that kid. If everyone's talking and adults trying to get attention to the room, I'm the one that's like, y'all stop. Here's this 
appearing to be mature young man. And he's not like these other kids, hoodlums, because it was mostly black kids trying. It was like a group of us out of SOS who had joined. So there was me and two other young men that he took us under his wing. And what he did was every Wednesday, he would pick us up and he would take us somewhere new to try something out. So we had gone to the museums. We would go fishing. I learned how to drive a boat. I learned how to fish. I learned how to gut a fish and scale them and all that stuff. We've gone camping, like real camping. My black ass is out here in <laughs> the woods and wiping my ass with leaves. Like real camping, canoeing, all sorts of, like I saw this whole world out there. I had no idea that existed and because of him. And that was the first time, and he was the first time that I was exposed to like the myriad of just opportunities of worlds that could exist, right? I wasn't necessarily interested in pursuing them, but like it was the first time I met a pilot. His son-in-law was a pilot. A pilot? You fly planes? What's a plane? Like, what? <laughs> his daughter did something. And again, he worked insurance and his wife, they, they had an insurance agency together. She worked with him. And then through his friends, right, his family would come over. And we had gone up to his family place in Wisconsin and spent weekend there. And again, just this world of people with, how are y'all doing this? How, are y- how do y'all have this house like this? These boats, y'all have boats. That blew my mind. Blew my mind. But it was also a chance for you, right, to get to experience and to see how different, like the dynamics of relationships. Yeah, absolutely. There was this, just to see the way they moved with each other, right? There's that part, like you all have this economic comfort, at least it appears on the outside. And I don't know how to say, it just blew my mind. Like I, I remember just being like, every time it would be something new, he bought a new car. How do you even get a car? I had no idea how to do that. And he would pay cash, mind you. And he would talk to me about these things. Listen, save your money. Put your money. He talked to me about a Vanguard account. I didn't know what a Vanguard account was. But he was like, no, I just put my money in Vanguard. And I'll be able to retire with my cash. And I use some of that cash to do these things. It was this whole world out there that I had no access to. Didn't know anything about. Because I knew knew checks that came in a blue envelope every month. A little check would come in the envelope. It'd be blue. It was time to go to a currency exchange. He took me to a bank one time, a bank. We went to the currency exchange. And so there was all this happening that was just really new to me. And I found myself, and this is what's great, I found myself wanting to be like them so I would mimic their behavior, the way they would move, the way they would talk. Now, these are all, I'm getting a little racial here, but these are all white folks. And that then created a challenge with the other side of me because I'm acting like them. I'm talking like them. That part of me started to show up and manifest itself and presented a new wave of challenges into my teenage years. <laughs> yeah. Because that lasted. I mean, Jerry was around for a long time. I, he since passed away, but he was in my life well into my 20s. Like I kept up with him. We talked. We would hang out. We would go have lunch all the time, have brunch. I introduced him to brunch, the gayest thing you can do. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> he was the first person I told I was gay. He was the first person I told who didn't say anything back to me that was negative. So the first person I told was a black woman. And she was like, why are you telling me this? You, I'm not the one you need to be talking about this. That's no, mm-mm. go talk to somebody else. And that messed me up. Not even going to lie. Cause I poured my heart out and was all, and she was just like, go get somebody else to do it. Mm. And 
So I clammed up. But then one day in the car with Jerry, I just said it. And he was like, okay. Told his wife. And she was like, <laughs> her first question to me was, how many boys are in your classes? And I was like, oh, doctor, I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> but, and think about this, Kristen. Here I have these folks over here who look a certain way, being very kind to me, introducing me to an entire world that I didn't know existed, taking me into their home. And then over here, the people who look like me shunning me. But I pine to be around. But when you don't have adults around you who are, because I learned how to be a shitty adult, that's what happened to me too. So think about the adults that I'm mimicking before I meet Jerry. Because again, I stepped into this role of a man in the house, right? And I'm looking at how to be a man or how to be an adult. And I've got a mother who yells and smokes weed and drinks and cusses and, and has her own version of violence. Because she was emotionally abusive. We didn't get into that. But so I have that. And then I have these men who are physically violent. That's how I learned how to be an adult. That's how I learned. That I didn't know how to talk to people. So I had this problem when I, when I moved out into the world. I would talk to people that way. My friends. Like I was condescending, yelling. And it's because that's what I was around. And that's what I thought an adult did. I meant well. But that was what was around me. Terrible. So I mimicked this horrible behavior and carried it with me, <laughs> mix it in with how these white folks are moving, because that's that was the part of that with Jerry was like, culturally, there was a clash because we don't move the same way. We don't, customer service is a little different. He used to throw his credit card on the counter and I used to start doing that. I used to start throwing my credit card on the counter because Jerry would throw his credit card on the counter. And I remember a lady being like, why would you throw this at me? And I'm like, what do you mean? I put it on the counter to me, but I was literally throwing it. And, you know, I had to unlearn some of that behavior as well. Some of it's the interesting. It's interesting that you say that because I, I remember one of my memories with my dad is being at a 7-Eleven when I was like, I was probably about five. And we had put the stuff up on the counter, paid for it with cash. And I remember my dad saying like, he, he was like, come here. And he went to the, the cashier and he whispered something in his ear. And I was like, when we got outside, I was like, daddy, what did you say? Mm-hmm. And he was like, I told him that he needs to, like when people give you cash, that you give the change back in someone's in hand. Way. Yeah. You give it in someone's hand, not putting it on the counter. Right. And that was like, it's a really strong memory because it's my first Honestly, it's the first memory I have of someone teaching leadership, right? Like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. leadership skills where it's like you don't embarrass somebody, but you tell them, you pull them to the side and you Mm. tell them. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. That's And I appreciate how he did that. Yeah. And see, and it took for me to be an adult to realize how I hand it to you is how I'd like it back. If I give it to you in your hand, you give it back to me in my hand. But it also took me to go out into the world to realize that Asians, particularly Koreans, Culturally, they put it on a counter because there's this move at your convenience. So they use these little trays in Asia where you put everything in a tray and you move back and forth on the tray. So here in the United States, we don't have trays, so they put it on a counter. And it took me a while to recognize that. But it took me to travel the world and see that and learn that. But yes, basically, listen, if here's Jerry throwing his credit card on the counter. He didn't mean any harm. Let me tell you something. This man was one of the nicest, really kind guys, but he would just throw his credit card on the counter. And then there was stuff about just 
about the way I'm t- I was too young to really process. And now that I'm older, I'm starting to understand a little bit more. But there is this why are black people the way they are was always in the air when I was around his family. And I was more like a token and this exception to the rule, which also made me feel better and more superior. But now understanding things like redlining, Jerry bought his house as a World War II vet. And well, it was paid for through the GI Bill. And he didn't understand that uh, the black soldiers who were in a different unit, because he served during segregation, who were in a different unit than him, did not get that. So he didn't, he couldn't process like, why are y'all like this? And so we would have, we wouldn't have deep conversations about it, but they were starting to come up. And then there were, when Trump became president, that conversation started to come up a lot more because I'm pretty sure his wife voted for Trump. I don't know where Jerry voted. When you talk about tokenism, the part that we don't really talk about is it's almost, it can feel sometimes in certain situations the same way that it feels to be the favorite child, right? Okay. where there is this pleasure in that and mm-hmm. we don't necessarily talk about it. We don't. Yeah. We yeah. don't. But that's, you know, it's even it's how we end up with Candace. What is her name? The black. Yes. Woman. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Diamond and Silk. It's how you end up with these folks. Candace Owens. Like, yes. Thank you. Who, yeah, you stand out here and they're going to lift you up for now and make you feel good. And there is a euphoric feeling there. There is, especially if you're not getting that elsewhere. I was in these spaces and I was being patted on the head. Good little boy. And I liked it. It's super interesting. I'm glad that you brought that up. And I think that also it it can be confusing, right? Just confusing. Mm -hmm. And how you sort it all out is it's coming into being an adult, making choices and seeing things that you didn't see when Mm -hmm. you were in your 20s, you were in your teens. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I, I wanted to be around my folks, right? There was part of that was like, I want to be around y'all. I want to be up under y'all. But because I am mimicking the behavior over here, I don't fit in when I'm around y'all. It doesn't add up. I'm an outcast. I'm acting bougie. I got told that a lot. I, one boy was like, you act like your shit don't stink. But that's what was happening in my world. I went from being this man of the house to immediately thrown into this world over here with Jerry and his family. And so I feel like I never really had still, even then I was trying to be an adult because I was mimicking, I was around adults and I was mimicking adult behavior. I never got to be a teenager. Like there was no real teenage time in there. It was just straight up from head of the house to now pretending to be something else. So let me ask this. Yeah. So it sounds like the progression that we tend to go through, the learning how to be a child, moving into teenage years, progressing into late teen and our 20s and all of that, it sounds like it was not a natural progression for you at all, right? That it was more like, uh, throw this in here, throw this experience in here, throw that in there. Mm -hmm. So how, Aaron, how did you come to terms with finding out who Aaron is and how you operate in a way that feels genuine to you? That is happening now. That's happening right now. 39 years old. I am just now getting to a point where I'm realizing I'm learning more about who I am and how to move more authentically. I am. And I see it. I see it when I'm with my friends and I say no to things I don't want to do. Or I speak up about very clearly that I'd rather have this experience over that experience. I see it in my family with there's an aunt I've never gotten along with. And now I'm realizing it's okay for me not to engage her. Like, that's okay. It's okay if we don't get along. It's okay if we don't love each other. That's A-okay. 
I'm just getting into this space. And so I'm trying to figure it out. I really am learning and navigating it right now. I don't know. It's ongoing. It's happening. Yep. It's happening. And I love that. I love that it's happening because I'm I'm excited. Yeah. For so many people that are listening, there are some that it hasn't happened yet for them. Mm -hmm. Still trying to find their way to operate in a way that feels like them instead of mimicking. Right. Yes. Yes. Because that's what I did for years. It was the only way I knew how to move. I was to mimic other people's behavior, mimic the behavior and whatever was going on in a room or whatever environment I wanted to be in. I would mimic that behavior, but it wasn't me and everyone else could see it. But me, I'm sticking out and looking weird because I'm not being myself. And people can tell when someone's not being authentic with them. I see that now, right? Like I see when folks engage me and I can tell when they're trying to either impress or they're just trying to fit in. And sometimes I stop them, like coworkers, I'll stop them and say, hey, listen, be yourself. Like you ain't gotta, this is what I do, but you do you. I'm still gonna appreciate you. Yeah, I'm just getting to that place, 39 years old and being okay with that, reinventing myself now. It's an opportunity for me to, who are you? You know, blank canvas almost, let's go. I love it. Let's love go. It. Yeah, it's been a wild ride and there's just, Since we've been talking, I'm just like, man, there's so much that's still unpacked that I didn't realize. I really didn't. Really didn't. Yeah. And I think the part about being asked these questions is that who's going to ask us these questions in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the important part of why deep conversations are so important in relationships, because it's not just people learning about you, but it's you learning about yourself, mm-hmm. right? Listen, yeah. we have talked about so much stuff. Oh my God. You said about... we didn't know where this conversation was going to go. We did it, everywhere. right? <laughs> we, it, it has. And it's been a great talk, Kristen. True. Yeah. And I'm super happy for you to make those connections with who you are today and mm-hmm. why. And that's a huge part of my work, right? It's just having people make those yeah. connections for themselves. But I think also one thing I do want to tell you is with all of the experiences that you have been through, like those really are the things that designed you. And mm-hmm. I'm so proud to know you. I'm so proud mm, to, I'm so proud just of who you are today. Um, thank you. Because of them, because it's not despite them, it's really incorporating them into your life. And because of them, you are who you are. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. Listen, I'm so proud of you and I'm proud that you are coming into yourself. The absolute best part of adulthood is when you are working on really living your authentic life the way that feels good to you. Yes. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. So Aaron, we want to thank you on behalf of everybody who is listening to this for really being a part of the Plastic Couch podcast. Thank you for having me, Kristen. And congratulations on the podcast. It's fantastic. I've enjoyed listening to the episodes. Thank you. And if this is an episode that touched you or you think somebody else should hear, please make sure that you forward this episode. And again, Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Plastic Couch Podcast.